I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning and would invite you to turn to John chapter 20. And again, this book is all about belief. Again and again, John brings it back to that question. Who believes, who does not believe? He couldn't be clearer of that explicit purpose. And it's in there often enough that we just can't miss it. It seems clear after having spent months and months in this book that it was not John's purpose to intrigue us, though there are things within the book that are intriguing. Uh, It wasn't even necessarily to inform us. Some of the things that are mentioned, others did not. But as far as the record of Christ's time on earth, we have those details in three other Gospels. I'm not sure that the purpose was to inspire, even though it's certainly inspiring. And very last on the list, it was never meant to entertain. Though people have used it for such. The book was written to produce conversion. To take an unbeliever and to convert them from unbelief to belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we consider the final sign. If you break John's gospel up into its component parts, he features seven signs. We studied what signs were. That it's, it's not unlike a sign you'd see on the side of the road, which provides information, but it points to something much different and much larger than itself. You may remember discussing my awareness of the sign out on 40 that said Fuquay Verena and I'd passed it many times in my life all it meant was there's a cracker barrel if you want to stop I was on my way to the beach I had no understanding of this place now I have quite an understanding still a new guy coming up on three years but that sign has nothing on this town in comparison. It's just a sign. So when Jesus is turning water into wine or he's healing a lame man or giving a blind man his sight, those are amazing things. We call them miracles, but they're pointing to something else. And that is that he is who he said he was. So today we look at the final sign. Not his death, not his burial, but his resurrection. His power over the grave. Now, if the book had ended in chapter 19, it it would not have been exceptional. Just about every biography ends that way with the man's death. This is not that story. And in presenting evidence for John's resurrection, John actually deals more with its effects on human understanding. He doesn't tell us the story so much in the details, but how people responded to the details. We'll see that as we begin to read. So what he's doing is he's convincing you to believe by showing you how others came to the same place. Now, some are uncomfortable with the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are all different in the way they go about what they explain, especially John. He's different than the other three, more so than they are different from one another. And some would say, well, 
that just shows that uh, they're not on the same page. You tell me. If you've got a bunch of boys that get into trouble at school, you bring them into the principal's office and you ask them what happened. And it matches word for word. Somebody's making it up, aren't they? This should be another sign. These aren't made up things. These are eyewitnesses with details specific to the person who saw them with his own eyes. The case in point begins right here in chapter 20 where you have Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. He's the, she's the only one he mentions. But we know from the other Gospels there were many women there. So why does he leave them out? Because he wants to focus your attention on the woman who saw Jesus first. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She says we. There's more than just her. But let's stop there, and we'll look at this in in pieces as we go. This starts on the first day of the week. All four gospel writers say on the first day of the week rather than on the third day. Nothing happened on Saturday. That was the Sabbath. You couldn't work. So what ended on Friday at sunset could not begin again until sunrise, Sunday morning, or before the sun comes up in the dark, perhaps, as we see here. And in the dark, these women make their way early Sunday morning. Now, The burial had been complete, but for some reason there seems to be something that was left to do, even if only in the estimation of these ladies. So they make their way with spices to anoint the body. Now Mary did not expect to see Jesus alive. It's obvious in the way she acts. We need to go ahead and let everybody else in the story off the hook too. No one saw this coming. They all saw him die with their own eyes. John's going to tell us plainly that they didn't put the scriptures together yet. So they all expect a tomb with a body inside. Now, her first thought when she sees the stone rolled away was to conclude that someone has stolen the body. Her first thought after that is to go tell Peter and John. Doesn't give us any details that she lingered or looked inside. Perhaps she did. Again, the thought of the resurrection had not entered her mind because she tells the disciples the body is gone. And her use of the word they there, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know who that is. We just make the assumption that she's thinking the ones that were responsible for Christ's death are the ones responsible for taking his body. The disciples apparently waste no time in talking Pick up in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping or stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb 
he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, and this is John, of course, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw, and look at there, believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He's confessing they didn't expect it. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's take a look at this before we keep going. 11 is a transitional verse talking about Mary from that point. Now, why do we think that John outran Peter? I'm sure you've been to Easter services before. And I'm sure you were told he was younger. So he was faster. I'll tell you right now, I'm I'm looking at folks that are older than me that can run me in the ground. That's not necessarily true. He could have taken a shortcut. Point is, we don't know why. So here again is another piece of evidence that John doesn't even go to the trouble to explain its significance. But doesn't it sound like a story that happened by the guy who's telling it? Or recounting from memory. When you tell someone something that happened at work, don't you just kind of color it up with other things that don't really have to do? Am I the only person in the world that goes, "Uh uh-huh, get to the point? No, we all do that. But if we make something up, then sometimes it lacks all those details because you weren't there to take them all in. So we have no reason to know why, but we do know what happened when they got there. John stopped. He didn't go in. Peter gets there second. He goes right in. So John gets to the tomb first, but stops. He looks inside from the outside, seeing only the grave cloths lying in there from his position on the outside looking in. Peter catches up, goes right on in. Now that fits with his personality. Very impetuous. Seeing the same thing John saw, but more. In addition, he sees the cloth that had covered the head of Jesus, folded and rolled up and set aside by itself. Then John goes in after Peter, sees the things that Peter saw, but John tells us that he believed. Now, the one thing I think we don't need to miss, even if we're not sure of the significance of some of the details, is that John the evangelist is telling you when he believed. It was here. It was something in that tomb, something in those details that convinced him that this is no accident. That's significant. That's very important. So what was it that John saw that made him a believer? He doesn't exactly tell us, but I think we can put some of the dots together and get a good enough idea. If you've got your Bible with you and you read through this with me, if I had asked you to circle from verse 3 down to verse 10, the word saw, there's six of them. In the translation, I've got the ESV. 
But there's actually four different Greek words used that each translates saw. So it's safe to say that your English translation, and I'm happy we have English translations. I don't speak Greek or read it well. But we're missing something. Just a nuanced difference between the way John's telling this and the way we read it. It's easy enough to overlook it. The first word that he uses for saw is actually referring, you'd have to go back further, to what Mary saw. The word blepo in the Greek, and it means to use the eyes to look at something. So it's the regular vanilla word for looking and seeing. Do you see that? That would be this word. It's ordinary. The word used here by John describes Mary seeing the stone rolled away and seeing the linen cloths when he looked into the tomb from the outside. So it's just a basic use of the word. She saw it when she got there. She recognized, hey, the door's open. She runs off. The second word is theoreo. It means to gaze at or on as a spectacle. You know, uh, our word theory and theater come from that word. You go to the theater, you kind of watch what's going on. You think your way through it. I know that most of what comes on TV is mindless entertainment, but you still have to use your brain to at least understand what's going on, right? So you're looking with, with consideration. It's not a reaction thing. It's a, it's a thinking thing. This is the word used of Peter seeing everything up close inside the tomb, including the headcloth. And also when Mary saw two angels in white, we haven't read that yet. But they're looking closer there, right? The third word for saw implies not the mere act of looking, but the actual perception of the object and carries the idea of understanding of the thing seen. This is the word used right before John tells us he believed, he saw, he put it together. All the pieces of the puzzle. Such that what didn't make sense before, now makes sense. And then there's a fourth word, horao, means to perceive with the eyes, but with special reference to the object looked at. And this is the one where Mary says, I have seen the Lord. I've recognized that it is him. So each of these words has its own way of being precise in what took place. Six uses in English, four separate in Greek, nuanced differences in meaning, but all pointing back to an eyewitness account of a first-person experience. So what is it they saw? Well, let's retrace the steps, but with those definitions of those words in mind. Mary saw the stone rolled away and the entrance unguarded. John saw a little more when he got to the tomb and looked in from the outside. He saw grave clothes, but no body. When Peter got there and went inside, he examined things thoroughly, closely. He saw the grave clothes, but also, also the head cloth, not where it was supposed to be, but folded up in a place by itself. Then John goes in. He sees all these things and begins to put it all together. What might have run through his mind 
well, like anyone else, you're, you're trying to make sense of things. Some people are a little uh, more inductive as they, they look and they take pieces apart and they put them back together. But for one thing, the thought of grave robbers was probably on the short list of what likely happened. They'd probably come to that conclusion or option before they even got there. That actually happened a lot, by the way. Graves being robbed. It was Emperor Claudius who would turn that into a capital offense. It happened so much. And guess which graves got robbed first? The ones owned by rich people. Why? A lot of spices in those. Maybe even buried with jewelry. It could be a motive. But John's going to rule this out because it was an orderly scene. It's not at all one of wild confusion where things are, are, are cut into pieces and strewn everywhere. And if the spices are that valuable, they'd be gone too. They're all there. So this couldn't be the work of grave robbers. Nothing was out of place except for the fact that there was a body missing. Strange thing is, it looks like it just disappeared without even moving or disturbing the grave clothes. So John clearly sees these details to be important. But again, their their exact significance is disputed. Some say that the, the cloth over the head maintained the image of Christ's face. And then, you know, the, there's that goofy theory of the Shroud of Turin, which was considered to be a fake long ago. But that's the idea, that, that it had his likeness. It was rolled up or folded up as what it says and whether or not the grave clothes that he seemed to evaporate from collapsed and fell flat or maintained the shape of his body we don't know all we do know is that it was significant enough to cause john to believe what seems abundantly clear in reading the way john puts his narrative together is that this is meant to be contrasted with another resurrection story lazarus Chapter 11. This is so different from that one. Most scholars believe the difference is what convinced John. The point for John was that the resurrected body was different. It wasn't like Lazarus at all. And with sudden intuition, he perceived that only the explanation that could possibly be viable was that the Jesus who'd been crucified, the Jesus who'd been buried in a, an, an a new tomb alone was that he'd risen from the dead. John saw this and put it together. The disciple who wrote these things are written that you might believe has just given you his personal testimony as to how he has believed. Now, John is careful and we need to be careful to give him credit for his being careful he says clearly that he hadn't put everything together as far as an understanding from Scripture. They're going to do that later, like the men on the road to Emmaus. But for these two disciples, the realization of the truth of the resurrection began with material evidence, the significance of which dawned on them slowly. They thought their way through it. 
I don't know if you've ever thought your way through that. But from this gospel, the people that were closest to Jesus, because we always want to think, well, if I lived when Jesus did, or if I talked to him when he was alive, then all these things that I struggle with as far as my faith would be easier for me. How long did it take Jesus to get 11 men qualified to share the gospel with the world? Three days? About three years. And it wasn't before he died. It wasn't after he died. It wasn't after he was buried. It was after he was risen. That's when it came together for them. And that is the thing that any thinking person, knowing the scriptures, has to put it all on. This whole faith, the reason why we're here, reason why you're all dressed up, reason why we call this Easter Sunday, reason why we listen to those bells on top of the building. You know, we can't hear them when we're inside. I was convinced that they didn't ring on Sundays during church. I guess the sound just goes away. Well, what's the purpose of all this? Jesus is risen. If he hadn't risen, we'd be the most miserable people on the planet. Most ignorant people on the planet. Most pitiful. Let's look at what happens as Mary continues in verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white standing there or sitting there with the body of Jesus. Had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. It's a transitional verse here. The disciples have gone home, but Mary has returned to the tomb. John tells us that the angels, not the grave clothes, are what surprises Mary. When the angels appear in the Bible, I don't know if you've ever noticed, usually it's their powers that give it away. But their likeness, they can go sometimes a long time before people even know that they're not even people. And the way this is written here, it, it, it doesn't seem that she is, is, is startled or running away or falling on her face as some have in the presence of other angels. So it's kind of hard to understand what her perception would have been. But having said this, she turned around and saw there's that plain word for see again. Nothing special about it because she doesn't know who she's looking at. Jesus standing, but he did not know, or she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Not what, but whom? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. A lot of folks have said that her saying that she would take the body away is indicative of her 
being hysterical. A woman could haul away a body. Doesn't say that. She could have all sorts of means. She could have had that done. We shouldn't miss what is said here by conjecture of what it could have been when we just don't know. But each of the resurrection appearances, including this one, which was the first, and others seem to have a certain tension. Mary here, the men on the road to Emmaus didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him. You've got uh, the men in the boat who didn't know Jesus when they saw him. And then add to that Jesus' resurrection body is different, remember? It can be touched and handled. Bears the marks of the wounds that were given during the crucifixion. That resurrection body is capable of cooking fish and eating them too. But at the same time, it can pass through grave clothes and locked doors. So it's different, right? Lazarus, when he walked out of the tomb, what did he look like? A mummy. Head to toe. Had to be told to cut him loose. This is not at all what John saw. And the head covering laying folded up as if to say, I don't need that anymore. It's just too much to be normal. Now, as far as an explanation of the difference between Jesus before his death in his human body. We saw the humanity of it the last few weeks of our study. How that when run through with a spear, blood and water came out. How that when he wanted to speak loud enough for everybody to hear, to say it is finished, he asked for water to loosen his vocal cords. Very much a human. Very much dependent just as you or I would be. But on the other side of this. It's different. There's only one place in scripture. That would remotely come close. To trying to explain the difference. I've read this before at funerals. Because I find that it's a comfort. To people who've said goodbye to someone. When their bodies have failed them. And this should be of interest to you too. Because if you're a child of God. This is your future. This is Paul describing the difference. This is in his epistle to the Corinthians. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? It's 1 Corinthians 15. With what kind of body do they come? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Any of you that farm know how this works. Any of you that have done one of those uh, little cups in Sunday school class, we do this usually heading into Easter with a pinto bean, right? You stick it in a little Dixie cup full of dirt and you take it home and water it and you watch it grow. What comes out doesn't look like what went in, right? But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is a kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Boy, he's getting real practical here, isn't he? 
Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. All right. Which ones do we have right now? Earthly bodies. Which one does Jesus have? Heavenly body. Which one will those who are asleep, just on the other side of this building, what will they get a moment after the trumpet blast? Heavenly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. Yes, there is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. You know the difference between perishable and non-perishable food, right? It's perishable and you don't eat it in a hurry, it will hurt you later because it's rotten. What he says here, what is raised is imperishable. It never goes bad. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. Which kind? Fleshly and earthly. He died and turned to dust. The last Adam, who's that? Jesus became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven and was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Here you go. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You saying we can walk through walls? I think that's just the beginning. Only because of what? The first fruits. Jesus has risen first. So how does Jesus reveal himself to Mary? We're looking at John's witness. This is Mary's witness. She supposes him to be the gardener. If you're in the garden and you have somebody supposing you to be someone who you you are not, what do you do? You say, hey. It's me. Do you recognize me? Isn't that what you do? How many of you have had fun trying to play this game wearing masks in the grocery store? (laughs) Trying to find out whether or not you know someone while they're trying to figure out whether or not they know you. So usually you have to identify yourself, right? That's not exactly the way this goes. For Mary... The only thing that was necessary to establish Jesus' identity was the sound of her name. Which is backwards than the way we would do it. Jesus chooses to point out her identity rather than pointing out his. I don't know if you like your name. Some people do. Some people don't. Some people switch the first in the middle if they don't. But each of us like to hear our name spoken, don't we? 
And don't we agree that there are certain people that can say it differently than anyone else on the planet? It's the reason why some people have such a hard time after someone has gone doing something as simple as erasing voicemail. If you want to hear that voice. This woman had lost her teacher. She had lived a dark life. He had turned it around. You could say that it was everything that was good about her life. She tragically lost. And with the sound of her voice, it's all back. Seems she falls to her knees and takes a hold of his feet. Verse 17, Jesus says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That message is for the disciples. And heretofore. He's not talked of them as brothers like that yet. But the sins are paid for and he is risen. The transaction's complete. He's brother Jesus. Because they belong to his father. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. That's the one with recognition. I have seen him. And that he said these things to her. Now verse 17 is one of the hardest of all. Verses in the Bible to interpret. The the way the words are there. And how they're arranged. It's almost impossible to understand. What it means. It's clear enough that he says that she doesn't need to hold on to him. And it can't mean that nobody can touch him because he's going to invite doubting Thomas to do that very thing in a couple of paragraphs. What it likely means is, is simply you don't have to do that. I'm not gone yet. I am ascending to my father, but not today. And maybe to carry along the idea To put to rest that this doesn't mean that it's all back the way it used to be. Like it would have been with Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. He went back to life as normal. And then in time died a second time. Jesus isn't going to take up shop here and and back to the old. He's headed for heaven. His business for being on earth is done. Mary was reacting as though he were. So he had to make sure that she understood. Well, that's the explanation of John 20, 1 through 18. What do we do with this? This is where it's hard. Every Easter to say the same thing. To people who have heard it over and over and over again. Kind of like at Christmas. And usually you get a bump in attendance on Easter and Christmas. There are a few. That's all they ever hear. Jesus is born, Jesus has died and risen again. That's the best part of it. But sometimes we get this problem called the horror of the same old thing. We're familiar with it. And it almost becomes like a picture on the wall that we've passed so many times we don't see it anymore. But John has bent over backward. To write a gospel differently than the other three. And when we read through those verses earlier. Highlighting the word believe. 
That was only half of them. The whole book confronts you with the question. Do you believe this? I'm not just saying, do you believe that that's what Christianity is all about? Or do you believe that people believe it? Do you believe it happened in time and space over in the Middle East under the rule of Rome in Jerusalem alongside the road near a garden with a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea? It was his tomb. It had never been used. He's buried. On the morning of the third day, he's gone. Now, all that business about earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. All that rides on whether or not Jesus actually is risen from the dead. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, this is not the most pitiful service. The most pitiful services are the one in the cemetery. When we tell people you'll see them again. If this isn't true. You won't. If this isn't true, you'll never see your kids. I'm I'm trying to make this sound horrible because the thought of it is absolutely devastating to any meaning in this life. Now, the the, the other side of the coin, let's just suppose that uh, the modern man does not feel confident in saying that he knows what is true for everybody, but only what is true for him. No, this is either true for everybody or it's not true at all. The other side of the coin is this. This is all one grand accident. You happened as an accident. And your body will decompose again into random dust, which is orderless and chaotic. And if you've got meaninglessness at the engine and the caboose, then tell me how any of the cars in the middle can mean anything at all. What I'm trying to say is that this gives purpose to everything. The reason why you would choose to be here. The reason why you promised yourself to another in marriage. The reason why one of the best days of your life was holding a new baby. The reason why you enjoy things. The reason why you can understand beauty. Why this is a nice day rather than a not nice day. Either it all fits together because it all comes from one mind who created it all together and then came to make sure we didn't miss out on it because of our sins. Or it's all just one big fat mess. John has spent much of his life telling this story. He wrote this as an older man. How many of you were waiting on that like I was? I kind of expected it before now. I think we'll just let them lay. Are you convinced of this? If so, what put it together for you? And who have you told? And maybe rather than putting together technicals like John, maybe it's more like Mary. Have you heard your name spoken? 
That's one thing I'm looking forward to. I think of all the people that have called my name. I'm most partial to the way my mother does it. But I'm looking forward to hearing how my creator says it. The scriptures say my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father am one. I remember as a little boy having my daddy explain this to me. And he took off his ring and he put it in his hand and he said, and I get it. And then he said, now wait a second. This is this is just one half of the verse. Here's the other one. Now get it. Do you hear his voice? Do you follow him? Do you believe? There's no undoing that. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I guess finally, before we transition over into communion. Do you believe that Jesus resurrection is the basis for your own? It has to be. It all comes together or it all falls apart. And if ever there were a perfect illustration on a level of the cosmos, an illustration of an impossibility, you might use that word. I mean, if you've moms told you never to say never, right? I'm going to give you something that is the epitome of a never. If the sinless Son of God came to earth, took on human flesh, died on a cross to pay for your sin and was buried, he could never stay dead. Why not? Because death is not for those who have not sinned. You know the verse, the wages of sin is death. What did God tell Adam and Eve? If, if you disobey me, what will happen? You'll die. But if you've never sinned, you'll never die. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what happens to all of us? We should die. Then there's the rest of that other verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason why Jesus isn't dead is because he couldn't stay dead. That would be an act of cosmic injustice. He burst forth from the grave, as Peter would say. The bands of death could not hold him. He actually uses the term of labor and birth. Birth pangs. Something I know not of. But I've been in the room four times when I saw... They only last but so long and then the baby's coming. And Jesus could only stay dead for so long. Jesus is not dead because death has no claim on him. 
And this is the point of the message. The only way for death to have no claim on you is to belong to Jesus. And by virtue of his death on the cross in your place to give you his righteousness. Has no claim on you either. Say, how do I get it? Believe. Say, well, that's easy. Yeah. Jesus did the hard part. The easy part is just to believe. And be changed forever. Well, I hope you have your communion set up with you. And thinking of this as far as Easter goes. There's no higher being than our creator God. And if you were to put together the the Christmas story and the Easter story and look at them all as one piece here this morning. What it's telling you is that the God of the universe is saying, I love you personally. I love you expensively. Your life is at the cost of the blood of God's son. And it says, I love you eternally. We use words so many times these days and our culture has gotten crazy with modifiers. And it's it's like we can't say uh, anything without the use of the word super or awesome. Words seem to have lost their punch. But to think that the God of the universe loves us expensively, personally, and eternally. And then he sat with his disciples the night before his death. And he said, this is how I want you to remember that. And I want you to forget. I'm going to have you eat and drink. To make you think of my body and my blood. I'm going to go through this. So you don't have to. I'm going to do this. To focus the wrath of God on your sin on myself. Now as far as our custom here. Wake Chapel. Our practice with communion. We would refer to as close communion. Not closed. As if if you're not a member, you can't participate. Now it's close in that we ask that you be a child of God. If you don't understand what we've been talking about so far, it probably be better to just let that pass only because it will have little meaning to you. And the scriptures seem to warn about doing it in a way that doesn't give justice to what it means. And the scriptures... It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And the only other thing I usually mention is to parents. 
with little ones, you as the parent know what your child believes or isn't ready to comprehend just yet. Sometimes it's best to let it pass until a time where it means something much, much more. Now, as far as these go, they're different than last time. And last time was the first time we'd ever done anything like this. This one's a little more simplistic. The bread is in the bottom. We'll start there. Peel back the cover and there you go. And then the top is second. But before we do this, we're going to pray. We're going to give you a few moments to pray as well. Time of examination. Keyboard will play. We've got the birds and the wind to listen to. But I would suggest that you let the Lord bring to your conscience anything that you need to leave with him. So as not to do what he asks us to do to remember what he's done for us. With any sin account still pending. For the next few minutes, let's pray. scriptures tell us for I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me father in heaven we thank you for your body broken for us on the cross of Calvary. 
not only to forgive our sins, but to provide obedience where there was disobedience. Lord, we ask that you give us what it takes to remember you the way you asked to be remembered. Bless now this tiny piece of bread by itself quite insignificant, but what it represents. Thank you. In your name, amen. Scriptures also say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Father in heaven, we thank you for your blood. Lord, we ask that you be pleased in our remembrance something so precious completely unlike anything at all resembling our own thank you for giving it up shedding it on the cross for the remission of our sins bless now this cup of juice the blood of the vine we do this in remembrance of you amen been done as the Lord commanded we've got one more song to sing and I could hear you singing from over there even with the speaker in between us I've missed hearing your voices and I know we don't sound like we do in the building with a roof to bounce it back but I kind of like it with no roof at all I think this last song we ought to sing is if God were hard of hearing. Even though we know he's not. But it'll do us good. To just be able to sing the truth that we know is true. It's so good to see each of you. And I know we've got guests visiting. Glad to have you too. Thank you for coming. And this passage we went through is something we've heard so many times before. Maybe dozens. Maybe a hundred times. But I know no other way to tell it than the way the scriptures give it. The only thing I would ask you before we leave. Do you believe? Won't you believe? Do you need help believing? Come see me. Come see the one that brought you. Read the Bible, but answer it for yourself. Please don't dismiss it. You must be born again. You must believe. On Easter Sunday, it's the greatest message ever told. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. We'll sing and you'll be dismissed. Father in heaven.
We are thankful. We are blessed. Lord, in some ways, I suppose we might even be overwhelmed at the ability to be out under the sun together in your name. Lord, I ask that you inhabit the praises of your people. So we consider the words that we are singing. Lord, would you fill our hearts with joy? And Lord, would you fill them with fire, burning to tell others? Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for life. Thank you for one another. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.